Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Good morning. How's everybody? Okay. All right. I'm assuming that that means good, even though it sounded a little garbled. But good to see you this morning. My name is Zach Lee. I'm one of the ministers here on staff. If you are visiting with us, welcome to Parkway. Super glad that you are here. Happy Mother's Day, by the way, to all of the mothers. I know that you've now heard that probably a lot, and I'm going to keep saying it. Happy Mother's Day to you. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. While you're turning there, I want to mention something about mothers and why we're so thankful for them. Number one, because we don't exist without them. We are literally all not here without mothers. So super thankful for them for things like existence. Also super thankful for their just what seems to be endless grace, all right? Uh, Katie's uh, mom, my mother-in-law, is actually not here today, uh, but we have a great relationship. So I'm not able to do all the mother-in-law jokes that people are typically able to do because I married into a, a family that actually happened to be pretty great. But what happened a few years ago is she had made some passing comment about how she thought that Tom Selleck was handsome. Now, she's right. You know Tom Selleck. He's got that mustache, kind of looks like everything you've ever loved looking at. That's who he is. He's an actor. He's famous. Kind of looks like mankind did probably before the fall. And so she said, I think Tom Selleck's so handsome. And so now what I will do is I will wait until she's not manning her phone. And every time she walks away from her phone, I will take it and I will put a picture of Tom Selleck as her background. That's just what I do now. So I will wait if we're at some sort of family event or we're hanging out. I will watch her and wait until she leaves her phone. And then I will sneak over there and put some sweet mustache on the background of that phone, all right? Some, some Tom Selleck there for her. And to this day, she has not killed me, all right? She has not killed me. We are thankful for the grace of mothers. So, last week, we uh, continued in a series that we're in right now on the book of Ephesians. And last week, we looked at two very difficult doctrines. We looked at what was called unconditional election, that God selects who he will save and who he will not from before the foundation of the world. And we basically tried to ask the question, who does God think he is? God? And we said, yes, God does think he's God. And then we talked about something called the perseverance of the saints. Can a true Christian lose their salvation? Someone who's been regenerated, someone who's been forgiven, one of God's elect, can they lose their salvation? And the answer is no. The question is not, can a Christian lose their salvation? The question is, can God lose a Christian salvation? And he does not. 
Now, someone can think that they're a Christian and walk away from the faith, but that means they never really had the faith to begin with. To say it another way, once saved, always saved is true, but it only works as long as you were once saved. Well, today, Paul is going to continue praising God in one big, long, run-on sentence. In English, it's two sentences here. In Greek, it's all one big, long, run-on sentence, and he's going to continue praising God for his grace. This text will drive you nuts if you're like an English teacher or something, because he just keeps going. He he stair-steps. He'll say something, and then he'll drop down and say something else, and then he'll drop down and say something else, and he'll just keep doing that. Have you ever been in a conversation where you say to yourself, how did we get on this topic? and you can kind of trace it back, that happens to me all the time because I'm super ADD. I'll be in the car and I'll be thinking some really weird thought, like we should kill all the cats or something like this. If you're a cat person, I'm just joking, don't get mad. And I'll think to myself, how did I get on that thought? Well, I was thinking about work and then I thought about how I need to go home later and then I think when I get home I need to mow the lawn and then it'll be easy in the backyard because I don't have a dog. I'm so glad I don't have a cat, we should kill all the cats. And that's kind of the progression of my thoughts. Well, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is going to do here. He's going to say, I've heard of these good things. I thank God for them. I always pray for you. I pray that your hearts might be enlightened. I pray that you might better know God's hope, inheritance, and power towards you. By the way, that same power is the one that raised Christ from the dead and made him the head over the church. Okay, that's what Paul's going to do. It's one kind of long run-on thought that we're going to see and break down today. So with that in mind, let's jump into verses 15 and 16. We're going to walk through this line by line. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Here we get to see the heart of Paul the pastor. He knows people in this congregation have become believers. They've been sealed with the Spirit. He hears about their love for one another and their faith in Christ. And by the way, notice that those go together. That as we're reconciled to God vertically, it creates reconciliation to humans horizontally. And here you get to see the fact that that rejoices Paul's heart. To see something good happen to us, to see us further know Christ, rejoices his heart. There's a uh, professor over at Southern Seminary. His name's Randy Stinson. Southern is one of the seminaries we support here at Parkway. And he teaches a lot of classes on things like family discipleship, marriage, a lot of kind of family ministry type classes. And he has like a billion kids, all right? He like adopts a new kid every two weeks. He's just got like 18,000 kids or something. And so what he will do is if he goes on a work trip or he goes and travels, he will bring back a souvenir, not for all of them, but just for one of them, okay? Now, we typically wouldn't do that. If I give one of, you know, if we've got two kids, for example, and you give one of them a toy, you typically give the other one a toy as well so that kid doesn't get jealous, If you buy one of them a new pair of shoes, you might buy the other one a new pair of shoes so the kids don't get jealous. But what that can actually do over time is you can start inculcating this idea of entitlement. I'm only happy when something good is happening to me, not just when it's happening to my brother. And so he's trying to fight that mentality. So he will call in all of his kids in the room and he will say, kids, while I was gone, I got a toy just for Johnny. Not for anybody else. I love you all. But while I was gone, I just got a toy for Johnny. I'm going to give it to Johnny, and then I want you to tell him how happy you are that something good happened to your brother. And he'll give him the toy, and he said just through tears, they're like, I'm happy for you, right? And they're just weeping. What is he trying to do? He's trying to teach his kids that they should rejoice with those who rejoice, that when something good happens to one of the other ones, they should rejoice, not just when things happen to them, 
but when something good is happening to somebody else, that we rejoice. You don't only rejoice when you get a toy, you rejoice when something good happens to your brother. And here we see Paul's heart as he's rejoicing for hearing what's going on in this congregation, okay? For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Prayer for Paul in this passage is not just something that we do ritualistically. Sometimes we can treat prayer a little ritualistically where we just pray before a meal or in a service. Those things aren't bad. But here Paul really believes that this intercessory prayer has power, that this is a prayer that really will affect things. I've got a uh, buddy who was a missionary in Australia, and while he was there, a guy came up to him who was a devil worshiper, okay? A devil worshiper. Yes, scary. So the guy comes up and he says, by the way, I'm not going to do an Australian accent. All my accents are terrible. They just come off as like redneck Irish, and so I'm not going to do any of them. But this guy comes up, and uh, he comes up to my buddy who's a missionary there, and he says, are you a Christian? And my buddy says, yeah, I'm a Christian. And the guy just starts laughing, which is scary. And my buddy says, why are you laughing? And this guy says, you Christians are idiots. If you knew how powerful your prayers were, you would never stop praying. Me and my Satan-worshipping congregation can feel it when Christians are praying. And I thought, he's right, that there is power in this. When Paul's praying, this is this intercessory prayer asking that God would do something, and he expects that it's going to happen. What does Paul pray for? Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. First of all, I want you to notice the Trinitarian reference here. Paul is a thoroughgoing, strictly Jewish monotheist. He grew up saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, probably every day of his life. But somehow he sees this one God as Trinity. Here we see a reference to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It's not just the Father said to the Father to the Father, or the Son said to the Son to the Son, but rather that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's the Son, the Father of glory, that's a reference to the Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Here is what Paul is praying, that the Trinitarian God, would give us a greater insight into what we've been given in Christ. So much of the Christian life is learning about what God has already done for you. It's, it's kind of like being a kid who's adopted. When you're a little kid and you get adopted, you just realize, here's some new people that know me. But as time goes on, you start to realize all the blessings that means for you. That now you have a family, now you have a last name, you have people that love you, you have a roof over your head, you have food on the table, you have all these blessings. And Paul is saying, may the Spirit open your eyes to those things. Now, we need to do a quick little church history lesson. I want to explain something about this text briefly to you. Do you know where Pentecostalism comes from and the charismatic movement and these things come from? Well, John and Charles Wesley are the founders of the Methodist Church. The Methodist Church broke off of Anglicanism, which originally broke off of Catholicism. And John and Charles Wesley are the founders of the Methodist Church. Charles Wesley is a great hymn writer. You might have heard of songs like Hark the Herald Angels Sing. That's written by Charles Wesley. Not them, but some of their followers, what was later called the Wesleyan Holiness Movement, started to teach that there was not just one time that you received the Spirit, but rather that there would be a second time that you received the Spirit, a, quote, second baptism of the Spirit. For all of church history, that hadn't been taught, right? In the Bible, when you repent and you trust in Jesus, that is when you receive the Spirit. There's only one time where you are baptized with the Spirit or, spirit or receive the Spirit, but the Wesleyan Holiness Movement taught that there wasn't just one time you were baptized with the Spirit, but that there would be a second baptism or a second blessing of the Spirit. And what they said would evidence that was living a perfect life. Good luck, by the way, all right? So what they taught is there was a time you received the Spirit when you believed, 
but that there would be a time later on in life where you receive the Spirit, and it would be marked by living a perfect life. There's actually all these records, though, of these holiness preachers who sin after that experience, okay? Well, that idea got kind of morphed and twisted by a guy named Charles Fox Parham. Charles Fox Parham started a Bible school up in Kansas, and what Parham said was that there wasn't just one time when you received the Spirit upon your conversion. There were two times you received the Spirit, and then that second baptism of the Spirit would be marked now not by living a perfect life, but by, what do you think? Speaking in tongues, okay? So the Pentecostal and charismatic movement came from this idea that there wasn't just one time you received the Spirit, but that there would be a second baptism or a second blessing of the Spirit. First person on record in the United States to speak in tongues was a lady named Agnes Osmond in Topeka, Kansas in 1901, and she was one of Parham's students at that Bible college, okay? Now... I am not against the gifts. I am not a cessationist. I am not in any way here speaking against the gifts. Here is something that I am against. This idea that there are two tiers of Christianity. Some who really have the Spirit and some who only kind of have it. Like junior varsity and varsity Christians. Okay? There is one time when you receive the Spirit. The question is not so much, will I get more of the Spirit? The question more is, will the Spirit have more of me? Okay? Will the Spirit have more of me? One faith, one hope, one baptism, one Lord. We were all made to drink of one spirit. There's not these different tiers of Christianity. Why do I tell you that little history lesson? Because this is the te- one of the texts that those groups will use to try to prove that. They will say, Zach, Paul is writing to Christians who have the spirit, and he just prayed that they would receive the spirit. He just prayed they would receive the spirit. That's not what Paul means in this text. What Paul means in this text is the spirit that you already have, may he further enlighten your eyes and further illumine you into what God has done. It's kind of like if I say to you, may God pour out his love on you. Well, there's already a sense in which he's poured out his love on you in Christ. When I'm saying that, what I'm meaning is may you further experience his love. That's what Paul is saying here. He's not praying that they would have a second baptism or something of the spirit. He's saying For those of you who have the Spirit, may the Spirit open your eyes to what God has given you, okay? Again, not against gifts or anything like that, against two tiers of Christianity, where you're just kind of a a Christian, I'm a super Christian, something like that. We have equal access to God in Christ. Verses 19, 18 through 19. What does he pray that our eyes would be open to? Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great mind? Here's what this text says. Paul says, may the Spirit enlighten you to three things. One, may you see the hope that you have. Two, may you see your inheritance. And three, may you see the power of God for you. So I want to walk through each of these briefly. First of all, when it says that we would know the hope of our calling, this isn't the way our culture uses the word hope. Wade was actually talking about this last week to the youth. I thought it was really good. Our culture uses hope to mean something like wishful thinking, something that may or may not happen. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope I get this job. I hope I don't get hit by a car. I hope all the cats will go away. Whatever it is, we just have some type of hope, right? In this text, this hope is certain. It's not just something that may or may not happen. It's certain. We can know that God will be faithful to us in the future because he has shown his faithfulness to us in the past, okay? Let's do a little thought experiment real quick. Travel with me to a magical land in your mind and listen to what I'm about to say. Imagine, imagine a world where this would be the case. Imagine the world where there is a most perfect being, a being who is all-powerful, and this being likes you. This being loves you. This being forgives you every time you do something wrong. This being is for you and on your side. This being adopts you as a child. 
this being promises to be with you no matter what happens. And then when you die, this being will raise you up, and there is only eternal joy and eternal bliss after that. That this being will always be with you no matter what you go through, and then when you die, in a sense, things get better. He raises you, everything's good, no more weeping, no more crying, no more pain. Imagine that for a second. Ready? That's the real world for you if you're a Christian. That is the hope that we have. If you're a Christian, the way the world is now is as close to hell as you will ever get. Conversely, if you're not a Christian, the world the way it is now is as close to heaven as you'll ever get unless you trust in Christ. But what this text is saying is think of the hope that you have. I think we forget that. I think we forget that God is on our side and he loves us and he's going to be with us. Even if we go through difficult things, he will not leave or forsake us. And then after that, he raises us up and everything's perfect. That's pretty good news. He's saying, may you better know that hope of your calling. May you better know that hope of your calling. Number two, he prays that we would better know the riches of God's inheritance in the saints. Okay? Now, let me tell you what this means real quick. We've got to do a little, a little uh, language lesson. This means that we are God's inheritance. That's the focus of this. Not that we have an inheritance, although that's true biblically. We do have an inheritance. The focus on this text in Greek and in the context is that we are God's inheritance. Let me give you a little, uh, a little example in English. If I use the phrase, Zach's inheritance, is that something that I lay up for my son Judah, or is that something that my dad has laid up for me? Think about it for a second. If I say Zach's inheritance, is that something that I lay up for Judah, or is that something that my dad has laid up for me? It can mean either one. It can mean either one. It's the same way here in Greek. It can mean our inheritance or God's. But the focus of this passage is that we are God's people. Ephesians 1, he adopts us. He elects us. We are his inheritance. So what this text is saying is that you might better know the fact that you're part of God's family. You're God's heritage. You're God's inheritance. I was uh, at Chick-fil-A, because it's delicious, with my son. And uh, we went to the little play area for the kids, which, is, by the way, is just a huge Petri dish for disease. But anyway, it's a lot, the kids seem to have fun while they're, until they get sick later. But anyway, they're there, and they're playing, and I'm there playing with Judah, and this little cute blonde girl pops up right in my face. Like, I don't even know, I didn't even know if she was there. I was playing with Judah, and this little girl pops right up in my face, okay? To this day, I don't know if she was a mythical creature, like a fairy or a sprite. She just appeared out of nowhere, and she gets right in my face, and she says, Hi, I'm Evelyn. And I said, uh, Hi, Evelyn. And then without missing a beat, staring right in my eyes, she said, do you like me? And I said, well, I don't really know you. I'm kidding. I didn't say that to that little kid. I said, of course I like you. I do like you. Then she smiled real big and ran off to eat chicken nuggets. It was a very weird experience, very weird encounter. Now, later on, I was thinking about that, and I thought, how interesting that this little girl, as young as she is, already has this desire for value, for identity. Tell me I'm liked. Tell me I'm loved. Tell me I'm beautiful. Tell me I have value this young. Because there's something in the human heart that craves for that. Believer or non-believer, there's something in us that wants to find our identity in something, that wants to find our value in something, and we will try to find it in something outside of the gospel. That's the way our idolatrous hearts lean. Some people find their identity in money. They find their identity in finances. The first thing they want you to know about them is that they can make money. They can be flashy and things like this. This is why you hear of a millionaire who loses his money and ends up committing suicide. Well, of course he would. His God died. His God died. Other people find their identity in their jobs. They find their identity in their jobs. This is very easy for everyone, especially for men, though. 
I am a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm, a, uh, an, I'm an engineer, I'm a businessman, I'm in ministry, I'm in the military, I'm a professional athlete, whatever it is, and we find our identity in whatever our job is, and then when we lose our job or can't do that job anymore, we don't know what we're doing. We don't know who we are anymore. Some of us find our identity in our family or our significant other. We find our identity in primarily being a husband or a wife or a mother or a father. When our spouse seems to be doing great, we're doing great. When our spouse is doing bad, we're doing bad. If our spouse were to leave us or to die, life would not be worth living. We find our identity primarily in our family. Others of us find our identity, and this one's interesting, primarily in being the victim. Some of us find our identity primarily in being that wounded puppy. We find our identity in being, I'm the one that all these bad things happen to, and anytime someone's around me, that's all I'm going to talk about. You see, we can even find our identity in things we don't want to. We start finding our identity in our sins and our failures instead of in Christ. Conversely, some of us find our identity and our value in trying to be the savior of everybody, where we're trying to fix all of the wounded puppies. We're trying to fix all of the victims, and it's our job to save everybody and do everything. Other people find their identity in their sexuality. This is one of the big things in our culture. I think one of the biggest lies of the LGBT movement is it says that homosexuality is an identity. That's not true. It is only an action. It is not an identity. In Christ, you're given a new identity. Some of us find our identity in ministry. I've wrestled with this one when I've not been in ministry, and I'm like, what do I do all day? How do I find value? What? We'll do that. Or you'll hear of a guy at a church who runs, let's say, the parking ministry, and then he gets skin cancer, and he can't go outside anymore to run the parking ministry, and so now he doesn't know who he is. He doesn't even, he's not even sure if he wants to come to church anymore. He was the parking guy. Some of us find our identity and our worth in self-actualization. Read all the self-help books, get a life coach, try to be smarter and more fit than other people, look down on others. Judge moms online because they raise their kids biblically instead of the most recent pop psychology book, whatever it is. Some of us make ourselves our own idols. Some of us find our idols in politics and all kinds of things. Here's what Paul is saying. If you are a Christian, your primary identity is that you are God's inheritance. Your primary identity is not your job or not your family or your kids or your spouse. Your identity is that you're an adopted son or daughter of God, period. If that's not your primary identity, you will run into idolatry to wherever you find your primary identity. He's saying, may you know the hope God has for you. May you know that you're God's family, that you're God's inheritance, that everything's going to be okay in the end. I saw a great uh, quote on someone's desk recently, and it said, may your life always be as happy as you pretend it is on Facebook. All right? And then number three, he says this in verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? If the most powerful being in the world, the kind of being that is so sovereign that he ordains everything, is on your side and is for you, think about the great hope that that brings. He's saying, might you know that God and his great power is on your side? That's what he's saying. That the Spirit would help us better believe that. Let me read you a passage out of Romans. I think we're going to throw it up on the screen. Romans 8, 31 through 35. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And the answer is none of those things can separate you from the love of God. Paul is saying, I pray that you might better know your hope, better know your inheritance, and better know the power God has for you. I've got a buddy, I've mentioned this before, I've got a buddy who is a Navy SEAL, and I think that's the coolest thing in the world. There's, there are a few things that I'm really passionate about. Theology, baseball, bacon, and Navy SEALs. That's pretty much it, okay? I just think those are the coolest. And so I will be sitting with my buddy, and we'll be talking, he'll be telling me kind of war stories and these kind of things, and I won't share all of them with you because some of them are somewhat violent, but every now and again, he says something that's just a reminder that he can kill me, Okay? So I'll ask him. I remember we were sitting down and I said, hey, what kind of knife did you carry on duty? And he said, well, we, we could carry any knife we wanted, but I carried a hatchet with my wife's name on it. And I thought, oh, so you can hatchet people. Okay, your job and my job are very different, right? And so it was this reminder that, okay, he's a powerful guy. Well, recently, he and his wife just had their first baby. And what do you think is better for the heart of a Navy SEAL, a little boy or a little girl? Well, God gave him a little girl. And I have thought... Man, who is going to be the first boy when she gets older to come to his house to try to take her out on a date? He is not going to survive. Boys will just go missing around the Metroplex and no one will be able to find them. This boy will ring on the doorbell and my buddy will come down behind him upside down on a rope and be like, if you touch her, I will kill you, right? That's tough for those boys. But what does it mean for that little girl? You think that little girl is afraid when she goes to bed? You think that little girl is afraid of someone breaking into the house? No, why? Because her daddy's powerful and he can kill you. Well, this text is saying if we are God's children and he has this great power towards us, that's the comfort we should have. That if the most powerful being in the universe, that not even a bird falls from the sky apart from his will, is on your side, adopts you as son or daughter, think about the great hope you have. Think about the fact that all his power is for you. It's in your favor. It's in your favor. All right? Verses 20 through 21. Paul, talk to me a little bit about this power. Elaborate on this power a little bit for me. Verses 20 through 21, what kind of power? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The same power that raised Christ is now for Christians, meaning in your favor, okay? We talk a lot about Jesus' resurrection I think one of the things we can better emphasize is what is called Jesus' session, his sitting down at the right hand of the Father. By the way, you notice another Trinitarian reference here. There's only one God, yet somehow the Son sits at the right hand of the Father. The right hand is seen as the place of honor. This is why I make fun of Jeff, because he's left-handed. I let him know that it is unbiblical. The Bible talks about God's mighty right hand, all right? Although God technically doesn't have hands because he's spiritual. But anyway... He's seated at the right hand of the Father, meaning in the place of authority. And here's what's been submitted to Christ. Verse 21, far above all, look at these four things, rule, authority, power, and dominion. What does that mean to say that Christ is seated above rule, power, authority, and dominion? Every single one of these terms are Jewish idioms for angelic powers angelic beings. Every single one of these. If you look at Jewish literature, they use these four terms constantly to talk about angelic powers, angelic beings, demonic beings, these kind of things, okay? So travel with me real quick. Again, we, we need to do a little bit of theology about angels for this to make sense. Okay, when God creates everything, what is the highest thing that God creates? Yell it out. What is it? Man, us. We are God's highest creation. Dogs are awesome. Dolphins are awesome. Mountains are awesome. But God has put his stamp on humanity. 
We, out of everything that's been created, we alone bear the image of God. That doesn't mean that we look like God. Again, God doesn't have, God the Father doesn't have eyebrows and a liver or something like this. He's spiritual, right? What it means is, out of everything that God has created, we are more like him than anything else he's created. There's an infinite gap between us and God. We are not gods. We are just people made out of the dirt. But out of everything that he has made, we are the most glorious of the things he's created. And what that means primarily to be made in the the image of God is that we are to rule and subdue the earth. God rules over everything, and so when he creates humanity, he basically says, do what I do down here on earth. Subdue the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Make more image bearers and subdue the earth. Put everything under your feet. That's how you will glorify me. What is the vocation of mankind? To subdue the world for God's glory. That's our job. That's our job, okay? This is actually why in 1 Corinthians it says that we will judge angels. If you've ever wondered why it says that, of course we will, because we bear the image of God. Now, God has also created this whole host of spiritual beings, what we call angels, okay? They don't bear the image of God. Jesus didn't come to die for them. But they are moral, and they are powerful, and they are intelligent, but they do not have physical bodies. So an angel is this moral, intelligent being that God has created that does not have physical bodies. And when God creates angels, he does so for several reasons. I'm going to give you four of these. Pay attention to these, because this will be important in just a second. In the Bible, why does God create angels? A few reasons. Number one, they worship him, right? They sing holy, holy, holy all the time, and they worship him. They give him glory. They bow down before him. Number two, they deliver messages, right? An angel will come to Mary and say that she's going to have a son or something like this. They'll, They'll give messages. Number three, part of the job of angels is to help protect humanity. Did you know that? This is why an angel comes to help Daniel in the lion's den. This is why the Bible says that angels are there to help us lest we dash our foot against a stone. And then number four, and this one might be new to you, but this is big in Jewish theology and it's in the Bible. God has somehow assigned angels to help human institutions, nations, cities, these kind of things. Deuteronomy 32.8 says that explicitly, that God has assigned angels to watch over nations, but God himself watches over Israel. That's what that text says, okay? When they watch over things, that is called rule, authority, power, and dominion. Those are the titles they're given, okay? Now, with the fall, with the rebellion, mankind rebels against God in the garden, but before that, we know that the devil and a bunch of other angels rebel against God. Then you get what are called demons. A demon is an angel gone bad, okay? It is an angel that has rebelled against God, and you get demons. And all four of the things God created angels to do now become corrupted. Instead of worshiping God, they seek worship themselves. That's what idolatry is. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians, that if you're not worshiping God and you're worshiping an idol, you're worshiping a demon. Okay? So instead of worshiping God, they seek worship. Instead of delivering messages, they deliver false messages. Golden tablets, if you will. Right? That's why Paul has to warn us in Galatians that if even an angel should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one I preached, let him be accursed. Instead of protecting humans, you now see that they want to hurt and harm humans. There's attack, there's sickness, there's spiritual oppression, there's demonic uh, oppression going on in the New Testament, these kind of things. And then lastly, instead of being a benefit to society and a benefit to cities and a benefit to nations, those things now become corrupted. This is why the, the city of Rome in the book of Revelation is seen as fueled by the devil, fueled by the devil, okay? What this text is saying is that Jesus is stronger than all of that. He is above all of that. There is no demon more powerful than Jesus. There is no devil more powerful than Jesus. There's no earthly power more powerful than Jesus. There's no military power more powerful than Jesus. There's no nuclear arsenal more powerful than Jesus. There's no rule from some philosopher more powerful than Jesus. He is seated far above every so-called throne in the universe. That's what this text is saying. 
That should be a tremendous encouragement to us. Listen, the devil hates you. I mean, he really hates you. He hates you because God loves you. He hates you with all his heart. He wants sickness, death, disunity, divorce, adultery, condemnation, suicide. That's what he wants for your life. He hates you with all his heart. And that's scary because he's smarter than us, he's stronger than us, and he has been around a heck of a long time. But greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. Christ is stronger than that. We have a tendency to be really afraid of demons and spiritual attack, mainly because Hollywood has kind of glorified them. In the New Testament, demons are terrified of Jesus. Like he shows up and they're like, are you going to hit us now? That's kind of what they're doing. That's what they mean when they say, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? They're saying, can we stay on death row a little bit longer? They're terrified of Jesus. If demons want to get together and watch a scary movie, they don't watch like The Exorcist. They watch The Passion of the Christ. Okay? That Christ is seated far above all powers. All powers. By the way, if you feel spiritually attacked and you're a Christian, that's normal. We will get spiritually attacked. Okay? How do you fight it when you get spiritually attacked? You don't have to do all this weird stuff. You don't have to talk to demons. You don't have to go get a crossbow and a crucifix and become blade or something like this. Here's how the Bible tells us what to, this is what the Bible says that we should do if we're feeling spiritually attacked. You ready? Here's the Bible's commands for spiritual protection. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You fight the devil the same way you got saved, through repentance and faith in Christ. You repent where there's any known sin in your life, and you continue trusting in the promises of God, and he will protect you. Talk to Jesus. I like talking to Jesus. I don't want to talk to demons or something like this. Because Christ is seated far above all rulers and authorities and powers. He is the strongest one. I think we have a tendency to think of spiritual warfare as, like if we think of somebody getting like attacked by a demon, like a demon jumps on them at Walmart or something like that, and then they're foaming at the mouth. Most of the devil's work is done much more subtly than that. He appears as an angel of light. It's much more subtle than that, okay? You see it pervasively throughout broken, sinful society, and you need to be aware that that's where the enemy's working. That's why they're called powers and rulers and authorities, is because they have an influence. I'm just going to mention some examples where maybe you've thought about this, but maybe you haven't thought about it yet. Ready? Pornography is not just sinful, it's demonic. It's demonic. False religion and just quote-unquote spirituality is not just sinful, it's demonic. It's demonic. If you say you're a spiritual person and you don't mean the Holy Spirit, then I don't know what you mean. Mormonism is demonic, and Islam is demonic, and Hinduism is demonic. This is not a very PC message. False religion, biblically, is demonic. You're not worshiping the one Trinitarian God of the Bible. You're worshiping something false. Listen to this one, church, especially if you grew up in church. Ready? According to the book of Galatians, legalism is demonic. To think that you earn God's favor instead of trusting in the cross is what the enemy wants for your life, not God. In the book of Galatians, it says to try to go back to following the Mosaic law once you've become a Christian is to put yourself under the, quote, elemental spirits. That's what it means. Legalism's demonic. The abortion industry is demonic. Not just sinful, not just, I'm not trying to make a political statement, I'm just saying it's demonic. Planned Parenthood is demonic. We abort 1.5 million of our own citizens every year and nobody cares. We're just holocausting people left and right. The, no, the majority of babies aborted are female, yet somehow Planned Parenthood champions, champions itself for women. The majority of babies aborted are minorities. Somehow this industry champions themselves as the protector of minorities. Did you know in America, 
If we just take black babies, there are 900 black babies aborted every day. Planned Parenthood in one week kills more black people than did the entire history of the KKK. Consumerism. There's nothing wrong with buying stuff, but a type of consumerism that says my identity and my joy will be found in buying more things, you've got to see the enemy's hand in that. So what I'm saying here is this. In a Jewish worldview, in a biblical worldview, spiritual warfare is very real. But the way that the enemy primarily works in a place like America would be subtly. He's not just going to show up and say, hey, I'm the devil, come follow me and we'll go to hell. What he's going to do is he's going to work through the kind of kingdoms that the devil offers to Jesus when he's being tempted in the wilderness. When he's being tempted in the wilderness. But here's what this text says. Christ is seated far above all of that. Far above all of that. Look at the last part here. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. The way Jews thought of history is as, is, is as two ages. There's what's called the present evil age marked by the effects of the fall. Sin, death, demonic oppression, sickness, etc., And then there was this future age, this age to come, which would be marked by the reversal of all those things, that would be marked by life and resurrection and joy and unity and these kind of things. With the coming of Christ, those two ages overlap. We still see the present evil age and that we still see the brokenness in the world, but we also have this hope hope because Christ has done in the middle of time what the Jews were expecting to happen at the end of time that the future has broken into the present in the person of Christ. That's why the Bible will talk about this age and the age to come. We live in between the already and the not yet. Has God's kingdom come? Yes. Is it still coming? Yes. Yes. And then finally, verses 22 through 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. What did I say was mankind's original way to glorify God? to subdue the earth for God's glory, to put everything under his feet for the glory of God. Adam failed to do that. Jesus, though, has succeeded. Jesus, who is the God-man, who is truly and fully God, as much of God as the Father is, and Jesus, who is fully and truly human, as much human as Adam is. Jesus is the God-man. He has now done what Adam has failed to do. In Christ, it is mission accomplished. The world has been placed underneath his feet. And then look at this last little verse, and then we'll be done which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What does that mean? This is one of the trickiest Greek phrases in the book of Ephesians. And so I want to give you a quote from a New Testament scholar named Clinton Arnold, who I think does a good job of explaining what this means. He says this, The church is filled with power and grace from its exalted Lord, who in turn extends his reign throughout heaven and earth through the church. The church accomplishes this through dependence on the one who fills her and by proclaiming the gospel and manifesting the kingdom of God to all in an extensive way. Meaning, God fills Christ, Christ fills the church, the church goes out to the whole world so that Christ might have everything submitted under his feet. That's what it means for him to be all in all. Now, with this in mind, here's what I want to do. Before we take communion, I want to ask you some questions. I want to take this text that we've looked at We see what it says about Christ. I want to find some ways now to apply it to our lives. So I want to ask you some questions, and I want you to think about these questions. We're actually going to throw these questions up on the screen. So I want to give you the first one. You might not be able to read that. I'm going to read it for you. If if that's too small, that's okay. I'm going to read it for you. So just listen to me read, okay? Number one, first question I want you to ask yourself. When something good happens to someone else, do you rejoice with them or do you become jealous? What about if something good happens to someone you don't like? Which person, whom you don't like, do you need to pray that God would bless this morning? 
Like Paul rejoices over this congregation and prays for them, who do you need to rejoice over and pray for, whether you like them or not? Number two, in what areas of your life are you not believing the truths mentioned in this text? Do you not have hope in Christ? Do you not believe that you're inherited by God? Do you not believe that his great power is not for you, or I'm sorry, is not against you, but for you? Maybe some of you are thinking in here that Christ came in the world to condemn the world instead of that he came that we might be saved. What are you not believing about this text? This is not just ethereal things. These are truths. When we say that the most powerful being in the universe is on your side and has adopted you, that's true. Whether you believe it or not doesn't make it untrue. It's true. Number three, in what are you finding your primary identity other than Christ? This is a big one. We all do this. In what are you finding your primary identity other than Christ? And lastly, what else do you have a tendency to make king over your life instead of Jesus? What else do you have a tendency to make king over your life instead of Jesus? Let me pray for us as the men come forward to serve communion. Father, I thank you for this morning and I thank you for this text and I thank you for the great hope that we have in Christ that uh, you could have just condemned all of us but you sent Christ to save us, redeem us, die on the cross and then you sent the Spirit to apply that work of redemption to our lives, to convict us of sin and righteousness and to lead us and guide us and to make us cry out, Abba, Father, to you through the Spirit. And so we thank you for these things. I pray that uh, you might apply this text now to our hearts, that we cannot do it. We need you to do something mighty in us. I confess right now, even though I'm in ministry, I don't have a tendency to believe that you're for my good. I have a tendency to think that you're just wanting me to try harder or do better, that I just need to be a better legalist, and then I'll just crush it on my own, and I won't even have a need of you. That's not what you want from me. I confess that a lot of times I don't believe that the hope I have in Christ, that everything's good, And even when I go through terrible suffering in this life, you won't leave me, and then there's the life to come, and then everything there is perfect, and there is no more suffering? What good news? And so I pray for anybody in here hurting, doubting, frustrated, that you might overwhelm them with your love, that no sin is too powerful for the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ covers murder, it covers abortion, it covers sexual immorality, it covers rebellion, it covers uh, all kinds of things. What is more powerful than the cross of Christ? We ask that you would do a mighty work. We pray this to the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.